Please help me welcome J. Lauren Norris. It has been said that history belongs to the victor. History belongs to the victor. What does that really mean? Well, what it really means is that the loser doesn't get to tell the story. That's not always a bad thing, and that's not always a good thing, but it is a very important thing. Because at some point, you lose perspective. And at another point, liars tend to cheat until they win. That's what I want to talk about in this episode of Leading Leaders. I'm Jay Lauren Norris with Leading Leaders Podcast, and I know there are those times that I have told stories that people look at me and they go, that can't really be true. And there are times that in my past, more significantly than now, the stories weren't true. I just made them up because I thought they were hilarious. But I can assure you now, as I look back on the value of my own integrity and the life that I lived, there's just as much humor, there's just as much ridiculousness, there's just as much trauma and drama and tragedy and success and heroic adventures in my life that were real that we didn't need to make any up. Some of the bizarre things that I've lived through have been more than enough to fill a couple of books. The things that I've eyewitnessed, participated in, observed, studied, researched. There's plenty of fodder for great stories. The question is, why would you make one up? Well, perhaps you haven't heard of my new campaign. My new ambition is to uh, lead the narrative because I believe that the narrative as we know it has been manipulated, has been hijacked in many senses, and it's necessary for we as leaders to lead the narrative, to be a little more protective about the story that's being told and maybe even a little more, for lack of a better word, aggressive in writing the story as it should be told. A little less fiction and a little more reality, a little less imagination and fantasy and sci-fi that has been wrapped into so much of our today that we can't distinguish what could be from what should be from what is. We can't distinguish what could be from what should be from what is. Let me just give you one little tiny example of the practicalities. I was listening to some scientists, if you want to call them that, about, uh, say, electric cars. And they talked about the fact that a battery big enough to run a semi, an automated semi, that will transverse our country with all kinds of goods from one side of the nation to the other, that the battery alone in that semi weighs 8,000 pounds. Now, that's not just a matter of how big and how heavy it is. That's about four tons. That's uh, two full-size SUVs just, just for the battery. But let's go a little bit further than that. How much material is inside that battery? How much cobalt? How much nickel? How much cadmium? How much gold and silver? How many other chemicals and 
earth nutrients, raw earth materials, are needed to make one 8,000-pound battery. And from whence cometh such stuff? I mean, do you run to the local grocery store and buy such ingredients to build it? No. Have you ever seen those satellite or drone photos of mines, M-I-N-E-S, not with a D, but without a D? And I don't mean the landmines, the kind that blow up. I mean the kind where they send children into the ground to dig up and scrape up and fetch out rare earth minerals. Oh, they're all over the Congo. In fact, during the reign of King Leopold of France, in the Congo, if you didn't bring the right size diamond, he would cut your arms off. No exaggeration, there are still one-handed people in the Congo today. I've met them. And they lost their arm because the ruling elite demanded that they yield the kind of raw earth minerals and the kind of volume that was necessary or they pay a price. See, that's not a story that you hear because, well, King Leopold was the victor and all he talked about was how wealthy his estate was and how wealthy his nation was and how wealthy he was as he ruled over the Congo and other colonies like it. That's not the story we hear. That narrative has been manipulated because, well, you know, history belongs to the victor, right? Well, see, the challenge with all of the stories, just like the story of let's all go electric, is that we're missing all the side stories. When that happens and certain people become extremely wealthy on the backs of all of these electric vehicles and the solar power and the wind towers and all of these other wonderful, fabulous ways of producing electricity, what of the people who can't afford a $60,000 or $100,000 electric car? Because the car they could afford will be illegal to drive. Oh, well, see, that's why we need 15-minute cities. I was listening to a guy just this morning who was talking about how his uh, gas was $97 to fill up his patrol car. He was a deputy sheriff. He said, $97, how do single parents make it when it takes $100 to put in a tank of gas? How do you live like that? And of course, the story that he's telling is about him with a full-time job. I mean, he's got a good career. You can tell by the badge and the marks on his shoulder, the number of stripes he has and the number of awards he's won. He's, he's obviously fairly successful at what he does. But what of the single mother? who's working two jobs to make ends meet, sending her kids off for breakfast at school because if they don't get breakfast at school, they don't get to eat at all. And if she doesn't drop them off that early, she can't get to job number one. And if they don't eat breakfast and lunch and dinner at school, when they come home, they'll have nothing in the cupboard because well, there's just not any money to buy it. And, and if they don't stay for the after school program to get a little snack then, then they're going to get home before mom does. And since mom has to work two jobs, she's barely got enough time to come home and tuck them in before she goes back to her next job. And yes, I lived that life as a kid with my mom as a single mom. And we lived on food stamps and potato soup for a season. And I know what it was like when she had to work sometimes 24, 48, 72 hours in a row and wouldn't even come to the house. Been there. Done that. Real story. See, I know what it's like to live there. Those are the stories that I can tell in earnest. I don't have to make them up. But what of those parents who can't afford that $60,000, $100,000 electric car? How will they 
educate, feed, protect, clothe their kids. It's almost becoming impossible. It's almost like that was a strategy. If, if we can break down the family and take the father out of the home so the mom has to do it on her own or take the mom out of the home so the father has to do it on his own, a single parent family trying to earn enough income to live in today's world, well, that's really hard. So let's just say, as our current president has multiple times, uh, these kids are the kite string to our future and they don't belong to the parents. They don't belong to the schools. They belong to all of us. Uh, no, sir, they don't. They belong to God, but they're the stewardship of their parents. The parents are responsible for them. Uh, see, good leaders understand that the story they're telling their kids when they sit around the dinner table, if they can get them to put down their iPhones and iPads and video games long enough. The stories they tell when they go on vacation, when they sit on the beach, when they sit along the bank of the river, when they hang out together at a drive-in movie, whatever it is they do together, that that story that they're telling about their past and their current life is going to be the story those kids will tell in the future. What you believe to be about you as true is the most likely story that you're going to tell. Now, here's where the real challenge comes in as leaders. We've got to be willing to lead the narrative. And by that, I mean not just tell good stories. We've got to be masterful at the stories that we choose to tell. Which parts of it will we accentuate? What parts are the most important? What parts will we tell? And how do we craft those stories in such a way that they don't sound like a Harry Potter novel, but they, they intrigue the mind of those who have been raised mentally on TikTok, where everything is from 15 seconds to two minutes long? How do we communicate in a way that they will remember the stories that we tell long after we're gone? See, the stories we're telling right now are the ones they will believe to be true. And they are the ones that they will hold on to. And because of their affection and emotion for us, these are the stories they will retell, right, wrong, or otherwise. And if you've been lying to yourself and lying to your kids, the lies are what will perpetuate throughout our future. If you're going to tell a story, tell the truth. And if you don't like the story that the truth represents, rewrite the story by rewriting the truth of your life. Change the facts around you. We have so much responsibility as leaders, as parents. Let me just give you a little example. I, I have in my library, and if I zoomed out the camera, you could see the whole library, but I have this little ditty. This is the Selected Works of Frederick Douglass. This was a man who, uh, along with the Republican Party uh, around the time of the Civil War, had a whole lot to say about the way people were treated, especially people of color, people who had been enslaved. In fact, he sat down directly with the President of the United States at the time, Abraham Lincoln, and together they wrote and told a different story about America. Not just to the point of saying, here was our history and, and here's what we need to tell of it, but to literally rewrite the history of America through a conversation that they had to say, this isn't the way it ought to be. This is the way we need to make it. It shouldn't be like it is. We need to change the story. We need to change reality as it is so that the facts that we tell in the future, that story will be different. Now, I also want to show you another contrast. 
So this is a, a great little book that's uh, originally written, penned notes in the mid-1800s all the way up to the time of the Civil War, a guy by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville. Tocqueville actually came to the U.S. from France, and the question was, how is it they've written this Constitution and this Declaration of Independence, and, and you know, how is it that they're building this new nation, this brand new nation, less than 100 years old at the time, but close, how are they doing that when so many other countries have created a democracy and in 20 years they're under revolt again? They're, they're facing another revolution. They're, they're, they've been slid from democracy right into tyranny and, and their country's falling apart. And 100 years in, the world was asking the question, how is it possible in America that democracy has worked? De Tocqueville went all over the country encountering individuals, slaves and slave owners, politicians and everyday people, farmers, doctors, lawyers, and asking the question, how is it that 100 years in your democracy still stands? What did you do differently than every other democracy on earth? And in this book, Democracy in America, Tocqueville tells us what he discovered about the people who created these colonies. And Dare I say, if you were to read that book, what you would read in many modern textbooks or even the 1619 Project, they wouldn't jive. They would be two totally different stories, two completely different stories. I also have this textbook, America. It says right on the side of it, a narrative history. I, another uh, way of saying that might be a, a reimagining of history. Uh, this is a college textbook. It was published in 2016. And, and there's some fascinating things in here about <clears throat> various people like Andrew Carnegie and, and the way that things happened. And, you know, I, I'd be willing to bet that if you studied that book alongside the works of Frederick Douglass or alongside the works of de Tocqueville, that you would find that there are... Um, some disagreements. See, I, I've sat in the room with people who have one less hand. I've had conversations with them. I've sat around the table with people who've grown up in Cuba, but also had the opportunity to visit America. I've also sat around the table with people who have repatriated from Cuba to America, from Russia to America, from Yugoslavia to America. I met just the other day at the beach a lady from Bulgaria who has relocated to America. And she said, of all the places on earth, Texas is my favorite. It is the freest place I've ever been in my life. The stories that we tell not only identify the history that we live through, but they will shape the future that our children will live in. I listened just this morning. I shared it on my social media. Gene Simmons. Now, I didn't know that Gene Simmons, uh, lead singer of KISS, uh, had grown up outside the U.S. He was about 8 to 10 years old when his beautiful mother, who spoke only broken German, was invited to come to the U.S. She stood in line, and because of her beauty, they moved her to the front of the line, and along with her 8-year-old son, migrated to the U.S. He tells the story of walking into a grocery store for the first time. He said it was like city streets with food piled higher than the people. I was blown away that there was not just enough for me. 
There was more than I could handle. I couldn't believe it, in his words, that in the homes of the average American, there was enough food in the refrigerator to feed everyone in the house more than once. You could pour a can of soda into a glass in your own home at your own leisure. And that was mind boggling to me. Now I want you to understand there are a lot of people who have grown up in abject poverty in the US, living on the streets, doing everything they can to get by, living like I did once on food stamps and potato soup, wondering where the next meal is gonna come from. And that doesn't even scratch the surface of the wanton need of the average person living in Venezuela today, or Sri Lanka today, or Cuba today, parts of Brazil today. Drive through the streets of Rio. Sure, you'll see the, the gated nearby palaces of 200,000, 300,000 square feet of space, the 10,000 square foot house right in the middle. You'll see that. And less than a mile away, you'll see people living in a lean-to built of scrap cardboard and privacy fence. Been there. You don't believe me? Go look. Buy a plane ticket. Fly yourself in there and look for yourself. Don't just look it up on the web. Go. Go to the Congo. I've been there. Go to Honduras. I've been there. Go to Brazil. I've been there. And I'm telling you, from firsthand experience, the life they're struggling to live right now is not the life you want for your children. Oh, there's some simplicity. They, they don't have the video games that are plaguing the mental issues. They don't have the ADD induced, induced by video games and diet that we have. That There are some things about America that are not the best for our future. But opportunity is here like nowhere else on earth. Freedom is here for now, like nowhere else on earth. But it is at risk. It's at risk of being abolished because there are those who want to control our food supply until there aren't grocery stores that look like city streets with food piled higher than the people. They want to control our political speech until what I'm saying today would cost prison time. There are people who want to control our medication and our means of movement. When the police officer asked, what does it cost for you to have fuel every month to get back and forth to your job or back and forth to school? I, I thought to myself, well, I, on average in the last five years, it's probably been somewhere around a couple of hundred dollars a month. But in the last year, it really skyrocketed in 2022. It went up really high, uh, almost like it did in 2014 and 15 when when gas prices were pushing $6 a gallon and we were driving 90 miles every day to get to work. But in March of 2023, we moved to a small town. I don't like the idea of confined 15-minute cities. I don't like the idea of someone telling me how far I can go and who I can visit and how long I can stay there and what my mode of transportation is to get there. But I can tell you right now, we live in a city that is small enough that my suburban gets a tank of gas a month unless I have to go into the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. It takes about a tank of gas a month to get around this little town five days a week to work, going wherever else we need to go, serving customers, doing what we do. And that economy has changed our lifestyle. 
Of course, at the same time that we say that, we've seen the average lunch go from $5 a person to $12 a person. And so my wife and I spent a whole lot more time sharing meals. Yesterday, we managed to have lunch together for 15 bucks. We usually get out for about 20, but 15 was a pretty good deal. So we may go back to that place. See, we all have to tell the story of where we are to tell the truth about the life we're living, to recognize the contrast. King Leopold and the people of the Congo, they tell an entirely different story of the time that France ruled the Congo. They tell an entirely different story, probably as different as this textbook and Tocqueville's view of democracy in America, or of the whitewashed stories that were written in the times of Abraham Lincoln before Frederick Douglass began to write from his viewpoint. Every story matters. The ones that will hold on will be the ones most closely associated with truth. And if you, as a leader, want to leave a legacy, it won't be in the wealth. It won't be in the money in the bank. The government can confiscate that in a second or simply reset the economic structure until your wealth has no value. Just ask the Myanmar Republic, where literally it took wheelbarrows of money. Overnight, it took wheelbarrows of money to buy a loaf of bread. People would give everything they had financially to feed their children. Your money isn't going to be your legacy. Your story your story is going to be your legacy. What will be believed about our past and what will be solid enough to rebuild our future on will be our stories. Why do you think those who want to destroy culture and society go first after our history? Yeah, they, they don't want it to be found. I keep a whole lot of quotes and thoughts and ideas of mine in digital format, but I also write them down. Journals upon journals upon journals of things that I've thought and believed and experienced and lived through. So that when I'm gone, my kids have access to what went through my head. I dare you. I dare you to do the same. I would love to see every leader that I've ever encountered to have a journal, not just of their moments of breaking and their moments of transition and their moments of transformation, but the everyday mundane stuff. I get nostalgic when I see the old Ford and Chevy trucks that have been restored, but I love the ones that are all rusted and patinaed as well, especially the ones that still run. I remember my first car. I, my very first car was a 1975 Mercury Marquis. I bought it from my choir teacher. It ran great, but the transmission was slipping when I got it, and eventually I gave it back to her because I couldn't afford to pay what she wanted for it. My next car was a 1967 Chevy Impala. Actually, I had a Chevy Monza for about two weeks, but it broke very quickly. But the 1967 Chevy Impala, I bought that out of an old man's backyard. Ronnie Akins and I were walking home from school one day, and as we walked past, there's this old, old, funky-looking car sitting in the backyard of this old dude's house, and he's out playing in the grass. And I said, would you sell that car? He said, I'd sell it, but it ain't worth much. I don't even know if it'll start. It had weeds growing up through the tires and the frame and coming up through the door cracks and out the top of the windows. It looked like it had been consumed by the weeds. He opened the door and it was filled with mason jars. He was using it for a storage shed. 
He pulled out his other car and pulled up beside it and opened the hood and hooked up the battery and that old car started on the first hit. It had been sitting in that yard for probably 10 years. And for 300 bucks, I drove away with a 1967 Chevy Impala Fastback with three on the tree. And I drove that car for the rest of my, my high school career and into college. Like an idiot, I traded it for a pool cue and I lost it. But that old car was nostalgic. The stories of that old car. My high school girlfriend hated that car. She, she loved the little green thing, but she hated that big old car. But I could put 10 people in that car. We had a great time in it. See, these are the kind of stories that my kids laugh about when we talk about them. But they're stories of freedom and independence and discovery and adventure and opportunity that my grandkids may never have in their electric cars bound to 15-minute cities living under the watchful eye of everything from their cell phone and their iPad tracking them to the Wi-Fi in the buildings that they're in, knowing who they are, where they are, when they are, what medications or vaccinations they've had, and which ones they haven't. The story that you tell to your kids, that is your legacy. And just in case you fail to tell it verbally, write it down. Recount these things as often and as commonly as you can because the simple things in life that we enjoy right now are under the threat of being removed and erased. As a leader, you're responsible for that narrative. If not, someone else will write it for you. America, a narrative history. Right, wrong, or otherwise, somebody will be writing the story. Will it be the King Leopold story or will it be the Congolese family story? That's up to you. That's up to you. There's an old, old prophecy and a declaration at the same time. He says there will be a day when there will be a famine for the word. It will be hard to transmit what was written down from one person to the other. So when that time comes, I want to know that you've hidden those things that I've told you deep inside your heart. Tell those stories to your children so they can hear them and repeat them. For many generations of, Amer of human history, there was no written word. It was just oratory. It was spoken around the fire late at night. And true stories were told from one family generation to the next. Should that time come again, I want to know that you're prepared. I want to know that you have the ability to lead the narrative by telling a story worth holding on to. In the end, your money will not be your legacy. Your fame will not be your legacy. It won't be based on your wealth or your beauty. All of those are fleeting. We'd be based on the story that you tell about yourself and what's believed by future generations. I'm Jay Lauren Norris for Leading Leaders Podcast on Tell It Like It Is TV. Have a blessed day. Subscribe now for our extensive video library of leadership lessons promoting faith, family, and freedom. Hi, my name is Christina Knowles, and I just got done taking Jay Lauren's 
Story Power Masterclass. It was amazing. I took away so much information. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed being formally trained in media many, many years ago is the call to action. I will use that with every speaking engagement, and I'm so grateful that Lauren just um, spoke truth into his teachings, and he is a true professional. And I know this might sound weird, but I've been taking certifications in different classes over the years, and Lauren is not boring. I can't even believe I got here at nine, and then the class went by so fast that I was like, it's time to go already? And I was shocked that it was time to go already. So it's an awesome class. You're going to enjoy it, I promise. Lauren is a master teacher on storytelling, and I learned so much. Um, I'm really going to have to sit down and go back through everything, and I think I might have to have some more coffees with Lauren, but uh, it was totally worth my time.